afternoon. Uh, this is always sort of the task, trying to keep you all awake and, and engaged on the topic. And it's been an amazing day, and my job um, is fairly simple in that I'm supposed to tie things together. On the other hand, it's a little difficult because we've heard so many different insights and different topics, ranging from, of course, World War I, and I'm sure you recognize this picture. This is Passchendaele. And what I like about this is the lone person standing there in a devastated battlefield. So, of course, it's from World War I and the horrible trench warfare uh, that the European troops faced. Um, against one another. Um, so the talk today, I'm going to talk for about 20 to 25 minutes. I'm going to talk about violence, war, and peace, and just sort of look at trends in war and peace over time. I'm trained as an international relations scholar, and despite that, most of my research, if you want to really understand violence today, and I'll show you some data about this, happens at the sub-state level. So when I was trained, and I was a US Army soldier, I was thinking about fighting my nation's wars, when the truth is, is that most of the bloodletting that's happening in the world is happening within states as a result of fractured identities and politics, which we heard about actually in a terrific panel here just, just prior to this one. Uh, we're going to look at issues of focus, conceptualization, and measurement, because I think it's sort of blinded us to the gravity of these wars and why we need to keep studying them. Uh, Steven Pinker's book was mentioned this morning by John Gledel in our opening plenary session. And that book has had a profound impact on scholars. And I think to some extent, policymaking and how we think about violence in the coming decades, if not millennia, because of course he presents us with an evolutionary argument about human nature and how it's changing and, and our sense of empathy. And I, I'm a bit of a skeptic on this one, given what I know about humanity and the wars that people and the violence that people are still subjected to. And then I'll conclude with some implications, and then we'll open it up, I hope, to a general conversation about some of the insights that you've taken away from this conference. So the data that I rely on, uh, uh, and most scholars of conflict, and I should say that the study of civil wars is a relatively new discipline. Uh, it emerged after the end of the Cold War. Uh, we had the bipolar Cold War rivalry, and most people were studying interstate wars and basically the nuclear bipolar confrontation. And then when that ended in, in 1989, 1991, depending upon when you put an end to it, all of a sudden we started seeing civil wars um, not only break out, but our attention could be drawn to them and study them. And in particular, the wars in former Yugoslavia really focused attention on it. And so for about the last 20 years, there's been a systematic uh, growth of people who systematically study civil wars. And the Peace Research Institute in Oslo, John Galtung's outfit actually, um, uh, they uh, started uh, doing and collecting data systematically. Prior to that, the sense was that civil wars were one-off events, they were idiosyncratic, and you could not study them in a systematic fashion. Um, and now people are starting in the 1990s, people say, no, no, we can study them. And as you can see, uh, the southern part of uh, the equator is where uh, uh, much of the violence happens. But of course, the United States is implicated given its wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then Russia, of course, with the wars in the Caucasus um, and Georgia and other places. So trends in the type and frequency of war. So again, it's important to be thinking about the kinds of language we use. We tend to think about interstate wars, which is wars between states, big clashes. And when we think about those, we tend to think of conventional uh, fronts, right? But the last real interstate war that we witnessed was the Iraq War in 1991, where you did have conventional armies. Uh, we have not really seen a large-scale conventional war. People are nervous about today in eastern Ukraine. Crimea, of course, the Ukrainians sort of rolled over and allowed Russia to take Crimea 
back to take Crimea. I'm not gonna get into interpretation here, but we do have a big question about whether the troops aligned along that border, whether we're gonna see a clash of conventional forces. Uh, the causes of war, people seem to think that they're easier generalized over territory, trade routes, um, uh, sea lines of communication, that sort of thing. Those are the interstate wars, whereas civil wars are much more difficult to, to analyze because you have identities, you have values, uh, and you have lots of different actors engaged in them. And this is, by the way, one of the reasons why people did not study them systematically. We are making headway, though, and I'm going to show you some data about that. Uh, and then looking at the combatants, the census is that in interstate wars, you have organized armies, organized military structures, whereas in civil wars, it's a mishmash. And actually, the truth is, it's getting even messier. And I'll get, again, I'll give you some data where you have, you do, in some civil wars, have regular forces against regular forces. Uh, the first Chechen war, or the, first, the, the, the 1994 to 96 conflict in Chechnya, uh, the Chechens were actually fairly well organized with battle groups going up against the, the Russian military. But you also had uh, quite a few irregular forces as well. Um, fighting in that uh, conflict. And then as I already mentioned, interstate wars tend to be, tended to be north of the equator, whereas civil wars south of the equator. And then lastly is the consequences, which I think is really important for us thinking about uh, war and peace, is that civil wars, at least in the last century, and I suspect coming into the next century, unless we do see a nuclear confrontation, which is possible, India and Pakistan still have a lot of problems, um, Civil wars on average last quite a bit longer than do interstate wars, seven years on average compared to interstate wars, which last about three months. Uh, and so when a civil war emerges, we really do have an interest as a community trying to tamp them down. So when people ask me about Syria, there does seem to be this sense that these wars, and as new fighters, new combatants, new interests are mobilized, uh, once they get going, they tend to last longer. Um, and in the last, uh, from 1940 to about 2000, uh, interstate wars killed about 3.3 million people. Civil wars killed upwards of 16 million. So five times as more people have died as a result of civil wars than have as interstate wars. They're incredibly destructive. Um, and, and again, these numbers are fuzzy. We talked about this morning, Hugh Strawn, that lovely exchange about data and numbers. These are the best estimates that we can come up with as academics. So I mentioned Pinker already, and there's this, this um, idea that, that violence and war in particular is on the decline. Uh, and that was because in the 1990s we saw this uptick. But actually a really important uptick was in the 1970s. And as I said, on average most civil wars last about ten, uh, seven years. And so some of them are going to go a little longer, some a little bit less. And a number of those civil wars, El Salvador's emblematic, were resolved in the 1990s. And so when the Cold War ended, you had the capacity, in particular the United States, but then some other actors who were able to come in and negotiate an end to, the, to these wars. But I, in, since 2000, and we're seeing it in Syria and some other places, Central African Republic, of course South Sudan now, where we've got Machar and Kiir mobilizing their forces um, in South Sudan, uh, we're starting to see an uptick in the number. And so those calls, those people making these arguments or these, you know, these claims that we are, we're having a decline in war, actually the evidence doesn't seem to, that was a very short-lived trend because the evidence seems to be indicating that actually uh, wars may be on the uh, uprise, if not uh, leveling out. And again, one of the worrisome things about these wars is if you look at the type of wars. So a civil war is just sort of combatants facing one another, Croats, Slovenes, um, Bosnian Muslims facing one another. What's interesting is, is if you look at this black piece, 
This is a little worrisome because what this means is this is outside actors getting involved in wars. And Congo here is paradigmatic where it's a civil war, it was a civil war, but you have Rwandan, Kenyan, you have out Ugandan troops coming in and sort of wrestling with the politics within that state. Lebanon, of course, is the most famous case of this where that poor country, you've got regional dynamics and outside states really wreaking havoc. Well, those types of wars are becoming more um, common uh, in the current era. And why this matters is then you have sort of international legal issues coming up, but also more resources coming into these wars and more interests mobilized and seemingly making it more difficult to, to resolve these conflicts. So the first point that I wanted to make is, is I'm not persuaded by the data, we were talking about data, facts, claims, that war is actually on the decline. Um, now, one of the arguments that Pinker, how uh, Pinker sustains his argument about the decline of violence is he relies heavily on death counts as his measure. And so I'm going to take you through a problem with relying on death counts as a measure for making the claim that violence and therefore war is on the decline. Um, because it turns out that, yes, violence is still with us. Uh, it seems to be declining in some ways. Uh, but death counts may not be the best way to capture that. Um, and so one of the things is, is I'm questioning not only whether he's riding on the crest was writing at the crest of, um, of, of an intense period, and we're now going back again, um, but then also using the wrong measures for us to capture what's going on. And so here's the death toll by conflict type from 1800 to 2000. And you can see that for humanity, for us as human, uh, human species, um, um, it, it, there's been hundreds of thousands of people that have been killed as a result of war. Um, and the three spikes, this is the American Civil War here. Um, and then, of course, we've got World War I, which is our, our, our one of, you know, the centenary this year, and then World War II. And so um, you can see that those wars had a profound impact on sort of, if you look at total battle deaths um, over time. And here you can see it even more, um, that World War I, uh, World War, uh, American Civil War, World War I, and World War II. This is a normalized one. So this is telling you per 100,000 people, right? So this one is telling you across time is sort of giving you sort of a baseline to assess. So one of the things I did was, is I said, what happens, and for us philosophically, this is an important question, what happens if we take out these three cases, very important cases, do we see a decline in violence? And it turns out, actually, we don't. Right? So one of the questions that I'm asking myself as a scholar, but I think we need to ask ourselves as a community is, is are World War I and World War II um, such exemplary cases they should not be used for comparison if we're really trying to get at trends? Because they were such, you know, just such outliers um, in our assessment of what war is. And also, it could be the case, another way to look at World War I and World War II, one of the questions we had this morning coming out was, was World War II a continuation of World War I? And it's a huge debate in the scholarly literature. I wish Hugh was here because we could talk about it. Um, but the idea is that we don't want to create that force spike. And that's really important, that one of the reasons why we haven't seen large-scale conventional interstate war is, first of all, nuclear weapons coming online at pretty much 49, but then we also don't want to create that force spike. So some of the questions is, is when Pinker is making these arguments about general trends, there are really important questions about how you present that data and whether we should be drawing such general conclusions that you're drawing. 
Secondly is I don't think death counts are accurate because if you look at soldiering and how soldiering is being done today, um, people aren't dying as readily on the battlefield. There's been huge advances in medicine, and this is totally unaccounted for in these, in these data sets, these, these accounting. So whereas in the past, in the American Civil War, one in two soldiers would die from their injuries. Whereas in the most recent Iraq engagement, one in eight. And it's because we understand about germ warfare. In the American Civil War, they sort of got medical hospitals in the field. Vietnam, it was the helicopter getting people out and transported. And then, of course, we see that continue today. So being a soldier today is actually a lot safer in terms of death. Right now, you'll get injured, and in fact, um, this is wounded to kill ratios. A colleague of mine at Notre Dame looked at all the data across all wars and shows clearly that actually you're much more likely to be wounded uh, than killed in war. But one of the really interesting things is, is that if you look across wars over time, the percentage of people who are killed in combat, combat casualties, has remained relatively constant. About one in three are killed in combat. Others, it's accidents, disease, uh, those sorts of things. The real thing that shifted is if you make it to a medical facility. So again, Pinker, when he makes these sort of, and Joshua Goldstein, there's sort of now a group of scholars uh, who are making arguments that violence is declining, death is declining, and that sort of thing. I question that because I say you're not taking it into account um, uh, medical technologies, and a lot of people are still suffering. They're just not dying. And so I'm going to go into some data about what these injuries are, and the ones that are most profound are the traumatic brain injuries. A colleague of mine at Harvard's Kennedy School co-wrote the book with Joe Stiglitz called The Three Trillion Dollar War. And it turns out that in the past, these people would have never made it to a hospital. So traumatic brain injuries have really gone up. The good news is they're surviving. The bad news is many of them are not surviving well because the brain injuries are so profound. So the idea that we can measure the costs of war only in deaths, I think, is really misguided. And that's just traumatic brain injury. That's the physical concussion of your head. Um, that doesn't include mental casualties. So we've heard a lot about uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. In World War I, we called it shell shock. We don't have great data, but it does look like I found one study from Canadian troops coming out of World War I that their rate of suicide, so somebody interpolated the data, looking at the men who, should ha who would have been on the front in World War I, um, they had much higher rates of suicide. And in the American military, these are American military data. They're the ones that I was able to get hold of. One in five American troops today, active duty troops, is committing suicide. One in five, it's, it's just dramatic, really traumatic. And then you can see here, so one in five American troops is killing themselves, and which ones is it? It's those who are on the front line, so it's the Marines and the Army uh, have much higher rates, the Air Force and the Navy, it seems to be. So modern warfare um, uh, seems to be, uh, it's not just the dying that matters, we also want to talk about the quality of life that's after. Okay, so that's sort of on the war and the violent side. What does peace look like? And the good news is, I've already alluded to this, in the 1990s, there was an outbreak of peace. So prior to 1990, most civil wars, and civil wars are the largest, scale, largest form of large-scale violence ever, historically, across time. Interstate wars are sort of an anomaly, but when they happen, they're very destructive, and, and I don't want to undermine, uh, understate that. Uh, but civil wars are most common. There are about 20 per decade, if you really want to sort of catalog it, since the 1940s. 
After 1990, so prior to 1990, most wars ended by military victory. Either the government won or the rebels won, and it was, it was split between them, so about 90% of the wars. Very few were ended by negotiated settlement. After 1990, most civil wars were, uh, um, it, it split between negotiated settlements and victories. And the precise numbers is, um, so 42% were ended by negotiated settlement, and 39% were ended by military victory. And again, it was split between when the rebels won so in Uganda, the rebels won. Um, but if you look at these, and Liz, you're not going to appreciate these findings. So this is a book I wrote, my second book. If you look at it, one of the questions I was interested in is, I was looking around at all these negotiated settlements, and many of them were failing. So we can talk about the first Sudanese war with the Addis Ababa agreement, where the North abrogated that agreement, and you had to resort back to conflict between those two sides. And it turns out that negotiated settlements, yes, you can get them, but they're not very resilient. Whereas military victories, when they end a war, the war stays ended. And so as policy analysts, I'm a scholar, but I also do policy analysis, this is a tough nut because you know, on the one hand, you can get this piece settled, but then the question is, is how do you keep it settled? And so that second book that I was looking at was trying to learn from military victories what can then be put into these negotiated settlements. And it turned out that a critical factor is the status of forces after the war ends, mm -hmm. right? So it turns out that in many cases, the negotiated settlements didn't take into account what the military, what the police order needed to look like. Those negotiated settlements that did, El Salvador, which was fought over land, actually. It was a class-based conflict. Um, when the FMLN presented its version of the peace accords, 90% of the peace accords was about the army and the police, mm -hmm. that you've got to defend citizen rights. Whereas the war had started about land and distributional issues, by the time it ended, the FMLN realized, no, 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 we need to have a constitutionally mandated and protective armed force. And the, and the problem is, is that in many negotiated settlements, this was not part of it. Because of course, the armed forces were seen as dirty, violence prone, their hands were, you were, were part of the violence. It's changing. And what helped change this, of course, was Iraq and the debathification and sort of the dissolution of the Iraqi army, and then all of a sudden we had havoc. And what are the Americans doing? Scrabbling to rebuild the armed forces, both the Ministry of Interior for internal policing, but then also the armed forces in Iraq. So there has been some learning. So one of the questions is, is of course, uh, have we learned enough to keep them settled? Um, the other question we're interested in, of course, is democracy versus tyranny. What happens, and this question came up during one of the talks this morning, um, I think it was um, Professor McMillan talking about the idea of, well, what if it's actually a dangerous situation that this is sort of populism, that we're sort of all these, this proliferation of states. In the 1940s, we had about 50 states. We now have upwards of 200. So when people talk about partition not existing in the world, they're just wrong. We just call it another name. Um, but it turns out that, so this line here is the negotiated settlements. So this is looking at if you have a, a war that gets ended by a particular type of ending. And it turns out that negotiated settlements indeed do boost up the level of democracy, democracy in a country. But just as it's sort of related, correlated with war recurrence, you start seeing tyranny come in really fast. And this is what we're seeing happening in Sudan, right, where you have Salva Kiir just sort of dismissing ministers and uh, his vice president, he dismissed Machar, and now you're, it looks like we're going into civil war again. And so as a, as in terms of policy, we have to be really smart about how we think about um, putting this in. And it turns out with, if you have a government victory, 
it will stay as tyrannical as it was and most of civil war states are tyrannies or, or autocratic systems. Rebels, they tend to open up the political space a little bit more. So when Museveni won um, the war, he did win the war, he actually brought in a lot of the opposition into the government. Now, he's not doing a great job right now. He's sort of clamping down a little bit. But he sort of learned the lesson or was very smart about this, realizing that you want to bring the opposition in so they don't uh, wreak havoc. So conflict in the 21st century. So that was the second one sort of talking about, um, the second point was sort of talking about uh, how we want to think about the costs of war um, and then also the costs of peace and really be smart about it. And the last is thinking about conflict in the 21st century. Is it more than war? And we've already lauded, uh, again, this came up time and time again today, and with the Arab Spring, that terrific about media and the Arab Spring, it seems to these protests, we can talk about Brazil and Argentina and Ukraine and Georgia, Thailand, right, the number of coups. And so what you're seeing is populations really putting pressure on their governments uh, and violence resulting as uh, uh, violence being the result, whereas battles, and uh, violence against civilians is a smaller proportion. And relatedly, if you want to look at the agents of violence, when I said things are getting messier, it's getting a lot messier. You don't have just a state that you can call up on the red phone and say, what are you doing, Gorbachev, <laughs> right? There are multiple actors now who have the capacity to wage violence if they feel aggrieved in their society. And so you can see that, yes, states as actors and as agents of violence are still there and increasing, but so are political militias. So these are um, uh, militias that are associated oftentimes with political parties, uh, but then also rebel militias and uh, communal militias. So if you think about India, right, where you, you have large-scale violence, which often people don't think about as civil war, um, but it is. I mean, you've got you know Hindus and, and Muslims, uh, and then rioters, protesters, and of course external forces coming in and sort of uh, uh, stirring things up. And so the world today is just much more messy um, in terms of doing um, the analysis on what violence and war looks like. So implications, I'm going to end it here. Um, I think it may be premature for us to say that war is declining, um, in part because I think conceptually the way we thought about it, but also looking at more recent trends. Um, death by combat is declining, um, but the major shift I think we really need to acknowledge and, and, and think about injuries and wounded much more so than I think has been done in these major works that are going to give rise to cottage industries and policy um, as a result. Um, and then thinking about, I think this came up in your talk, Jake, about the political violence spectrum, right? And so you really want to start from the no violence. So just protests. We can go back to that other slide about rioters and protesters. It takes on average, uh, 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 Ted Gurr did this analysis about 15 years ago, for the first protest to large scale violence to happen. Right, and so you really want to pay attention when people are throwing rocks or, you know, putting graffiti on a on a wall. On average, in societies, you have a 12-year window. We just have to be smart and watch that. Uh, this just doesn't come out of nowhere. Um, and also, when a society had conflict in the past, guess what? It's much more prone to have conflict in the future. Uh, we seem to miss that. Uh, well, anyway, but thinking about political violence on a spectrum 
And as academics, policymakers not as much, as academics being more attuned to understanding the interconnections, one of the problems we face is sociologists study criminology, and to some extent revolutions and coups, but not really. That's been left to the political scientists. And then you have psychiatrists who study deviant behavior, and oftentimes these are connected. There's a little bit of movement in the fields to talk to one another, but not enough. Um, and then lastly, peace building efforts, um, they have halted a fair number of conflicts, but a key question for us is will they stay halted? And I think South Sudan, um, and then will they be prosperous and will they be democratic? Or at least representative, I'm not this idealistic, you know, I think, I actually think there are good autocrats. I don't think you necessarily have to have, you just have to have enlightened um, accountability and, and leadership in countries. And I'll end there, and I guess, Liz, we open it up for a discussion. Questions? Yes, thanks very much.